Hey friends, welcome to Bible Foundations, where it's our desire to go through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. And so every other week we drop a podcast as we go through a specific book of the Bible. And today we're actually starting the book of James, and we're going to open with an introduction and go through James chapter one. But before we do, let's pray. And I always want to start with prayer so that as we're reading the text, that we're, and we're asking the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. That's vital. That's important because he's the author. Even though there were over 40 authors that were different people in different times, the Holy Spirit really is the author of Scripture, and we need his help if we're going to understand the Word of God. So join me as we pray today. Father, we thank you for your Word in Psalm 119. It says that it's a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. And so today, Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd be the teacher. And whatever that I have to say, I just pray that you would Take what is written here and apply it to our hearts. Give us conviction and encouragement. Help us to obey you with all of our heart. And that's what we desire as we open your word today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, hey, take your Bible, turn to the book of James. If you haven't already done that, you can certainly just follow me along. I will endeavor to go through as much of this as possible. But first, I just want to start with an introduction. Maybe you're familiar with the book of James, uh, or if you're not, you're going to learn a lot today. But it's important to know that many church historians have not really liked the book of James. Maybe you're aware of the great reformer Martin Luther. Um, He's quoted as to say that he really wished that the book of James was not in the Bible. And part of that was because he grappled with some of the statements that are in here, and maybe it is that he misunderstood why they're being said or who they're being said to. He was the one who, of course, was uh, coming into a place of understanding God's grace in a time where they were selling indulgences and people needed to earn their way to heaven. And so he just, I mean, I think didn't understand some of the concepts and that James was really talking to believers, ensuring that they were walking out their life in Christ, not to live a life in order to get Christ and, uh, and out of works. And so this is a really powerful book and the context does matter. So let's start with just a simple introduction before we read the text here today. And and let's start by saying, who wrote the book of James? Now, it's probably quite obvious to you that a man named James wrote the book of James, and of course he did, but there's different James in the Bible. There's four different James in the New Testament. So there's James, the half-brother of Jesus, there's James, the apostle in the early church, and there's also James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the disciples of Jesus as well. So that's two disciples named James. And then there's another James who is a father of someone that's mentioned in the Bible. But most scholars believe that the James that wrote this particular book is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. The name James is a very popular name in the New Testament, but it really is an Old Testament name. It's the name Jacob. So when you hear people that are given more towards the Messianic faith, they're Christians, but they're Jewish Christians, sometimes they'll actually use the name Jacob instead of James because it really in Hebrew is that name. Now, it's important to know that James was not always a believer in his own half-brother. I mean, you see this at different times, but Jesus uh, refers to James as his brother. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55, it talks about Jesus's brothers, which means he had several brothers, half-brothers, of course, and James is one of them. Jude would be another. But in John chapter 7, it says here that James challenged Jesus 
and his mission. And it's really important to know that James was not always a person that was following. He was not always a person that believed. And it says that about some of Jesus's family members, and he was actually one of them. So somewhere along the way, James, the half-brother of Jesus, became a follower. He became a believer, knowing who his half-brother really was. And as a result of that was used significantly in the early church to help shape who they were as a people and move forward as the church of Jesus Christ. And after the resurrection of Jesus and the birth of the church, he became prominent in the church of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15 references him as a primary leader in the Jerusalem council. He's also mentioned by the apostle Paul. He's mentioned by his half-brother or his brother Jude, and he's also talked about in Peter's epistle as well. So significant apostles mentioned James, the half-brother of Jesus. So uh, we know that he he had that significant role. Tradition tells us, not the Bible, but tradition tells us that he was martyred in AD 62. Uh, His life was taken as were many other followers of Jesus. And this is just significant to know when you're reading this letter, who he was. Who was it written to? Well, it says right here in verse 1, not only who he is, but it says to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Well, this is a terminology that's just referencing Jewish Christians. He's talking to Jewish Christians who had experienced persecution. They were probably in Jerusalem. And as a result of their persecution, they were dispersed, they were sent out. And he's now writing to them. And he's, of course, understanding the duress and the persecution and the difficulty that they are facing. And it sort of indicates that these people that would receive this letter knew who he was. So he's a significant person in the Jerusalem church. So it makes a lot of sense that these people were scattered from Jerusalem. And now they're in all of these various regions. Some say Antioch, some say Syria. We're not really sure because he doesn't say, but we know they're scattered abroad. They're believers that probably knew him. But this was a book where the primary theme of this book is really about faith, faith that is not just in Jesus for salvation, but it's practical and it's outworking. He addresses everything in this book. It feels like the kitchen sink. You know, he talks about the misuse of riches, not having favoritism. He talks about not just being a hearer of the word but also a doer. I mean, he goes into all kinds of things from practicality of prayer and faith and motivation toward God in this regard. He talks about the wisdom of heaven. I mean, on and on. So he's really making things utterly practical. It's why it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Even though some church historians didn't like it, I tend to love it because I see it in the context of him writing to Christians who are facing all kinds of difficulty. Now, I've never faced the persecution that many of the believers were under at this time, but it's still important because I do face difficulties, and so do you. And so even if our difficulties are less, we can understand that there are practical handles and principles that the Bible gives to help us no matter where we're at. And so I I love the book of James for that reason. It's very tangible. It's very uh, practical. It's very hands-on. And with that said, here's what I'd like to do is I I just want to read the whole first chapter. I know it's a lot of verses. We're talking about 27 verses. But after we do that, we'll go back through, and I'm going to highlight at least half of the book we'll get through, or half of the chapter we'll get through today. But here's what it says, James chapter 1 and verse 1. And he writes, James, a bondservant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. He says, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, uh, some translations say without fault finding, and he will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought to not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away." For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When the lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creation." This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude or deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless." Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is the word of the Lord. 27 verses, the book of James, lots of things that we could talk about. Let me just go back to verse one really quickly here. And we're reading James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to recognize James identifies himself as James, but then a second part of him identifying himself where he says, I am a bondservant of Christ. This is a Greek word. It's doulos. And this word it refers to somebody that's been a freed slave and now by their own choice wants to be the servant of their master even still. That's really important. It's not somebody uh, that uh, is, is, is a slave by obligation. It's somebody that has become a willing servant by choice. And James is making a statement that I am a willing servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's chosen 
to do with his own freedom. And it's a very powerful way for someone like him to identify himself, especially when you realize who he's talking to. Uh, He's talking to people that are under duress and difficulty, and he's saying that this is who I am and this is what I've chosen to be in life and what I've chosen to do. I'm a bondservant and I've laid my life down to serve the one and true God. So it's very powerful. And from verse one, he goes into verse two and he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of many kinds. And so he's talking obviously about difficulties concerning external pressure, mostly because he's Uh, writing to people under uh, persecution. That's going to be the external pressure, which he references in these few verses. But he's also going to be talking about the internal pressure and temptation because he references that when you're looking at verse 14 and 15. So trials of many kinds is the external pressure, and it's the internal pressure. It's the persecution that comes against you, but it's also the temptation that is in you by the flesh. He's referencing both, and he says, consider it all joy when you face these trials of many kinds. This is another way of saying, count it all joy. It's like a mathematical term that you can calculate, you can evaluate, you can see this for what it is. I want you to be able to evaluate that your trial is going to equal something. This amounts to that. Count it all joy. Rejoice. You can count on it that this trial is going to actually equal perseverance and endurance. And he actually goes into this term endurance, which in another translation says steadfastness. What's he talking about? He's saying that as the adverse wind comes, it causes you to stand stronger, stronger than if it didn't come. You can count on it that this trial, if you face it the right way, that you'll be able to endure for what purpose? Well, he says it right here. He actually goes into saying, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, This term perfect isn't moral perfection, it's maturity, that you can be brought unto completion. In other words, we're going to need endurance to get all the way where God is taking us, all right? It's going to take a certain kind of spiritual stamina. Uh, That stamina is not produced just by getting up in the morning saying, I'm going to try harder and I'm going to do better. Uh, That stamina is given by God in the face of adverse winds and storms. Uh, That's how we get them. Now, he's not saying get excited about the storm. He's saying, Count the cost, calculate it, evaluate it properly, that when it comes, what God will do, not what the storm maybe is intending, but what God will do in the face of the difficulty, if you process this properly, is he will give you in exchange as you face him the endurance that you need to get everywhere that you're going. Listen, I I know you don't want to hear this, and it's never like the most popular Christian message, but trials help us to become like Jesus. Why? Because we go through them and it shows forth a certain kind of quality, a character, a character that's otherly. Uh, It's not hard to react. It's not hard to get angry. It's not hard to respond to people in situations with fear and unbelief and anger and unrighteousness. That's the natural person. That's the natural man or woman that we are. When something bad happens, you know, we don't usually make lemonade out of lemons. You understand? We... (laughs) And we just don't. Uh, uh, Sometimes people in culture will say, hey, when you get lemons, make lemonade out of it. It, It's just sort of a funny thing. But this is sort of 
James's way of saying, yeah, actually you can count on it that you can make lemonade and, and, and you, you, you can drink that lemonade and have a great time because God's at work in you. Now, isn't it nice to know that no matter what we go through, no matter how hard it is, that God's actually doing something? It's powerful. That's why you can rejoice. I don't know how we could rejoice any other way. I, when I face difficulties, I don't think, oh man, I'm really excited about this. You have to be able to look beyond what you're facing and know that something is coming, something that's gold and silver, something that's quality, and that refining process is necessary. But be sure of this. James says that he wants to take us to completion. And you can't get there without endurance. And you can't get endurance without facing those adverse winds. So even though we don't like the trial, we actually need these types of things in life in order to become like Jesus. James goes on here in verse five, he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let let him ask of God. He talks about some context for this, but, but just before we go into that, think about this. If you lack wisdom, this... Uh, this plea that he's making, if you lack something, you can ask of God. But why would he talk about lacking wisdom? Because we're going through a trial. It's very connected. The context is, is not separate here. So he's talking to people who are going through difficulty, and he's saying, if you lack wisdom, wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. If you don't know what to do, don't worry about it. Ask the one who does. I mean, it's very simple. Uh, you're going through something you've never faced before. We all do. No matter how knowledgeable you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, uh, today is not yesterday. What you're, ha- what you're going through today is not what you faced in the years past. And so that means that we've got to reach into God today for what we need. This is like that fresh bread, that new manna we need from God every day of our life. That's why Jesus taught us to pray in a daily way. Give us today our daily bread. That's our physical need. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I mean, obviously, you, you can't just walk walk into the day and say, well, I have no issues because that day might have issues. You, know, you might have some something that you need to ask for forgiveness for, and you might need to forgive someone. He goes on to say, but deliver us from the from temptation or deliver us from the evil one. Well, because today it's got its own onslaught of the enemy. It's got its own temptation of the flesh. So we have to be aware in our prayer life, in our spiritual life. And he's talking to people who are facing it for real. And he's saying, if you lack wisdom, you don't know what to do. Ask God and God will give you what you need. And then he talks about God's character. Because he's dependable. Uh, No matter what we're facing and no matter what is going on in our hearts, he says, ask of God who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. What does this word reproach mean? Well, some translations actually say without fault finding. I I just want to say it to you a different way. God does not qualify you when you come to him and ask for wisdom. He does not make sure that you're meeting a certain requirement list. If you come to God and you're in need, God gives generously. That is who he is. He's a good father and he's generous and he doesn't find fault with you and qualify whether or not you're worthy to receive the wisdom that you're asking for. He doesn't patronize you. I've told this story before. It's kind of 
silly, and I'm going to say it again just to kind of give sort of an extreme example to make us aware of what I think James is talking about. But sometimes when you're raising kids, in the middle of the night, I always hated this, but in the middle of the night, a kid will run into your bedroom at like two o'clock in the morning and they're like, they're real sick and maybe they're like throwing up. And that's just one of the grossest things in the world to have to deal with, you know, for a kid and for a parent in the middle of the night, like just waking up out of a deep sleep. But that can happen. And when your kid runs into your room in the middle of the night, mom, dad, I'm sick. Oh man, I'm just, and, and they're really experiencing it. You don't go, well, did you make your bed today? Uh, did you sass your sister today? Did you talk back to your mom or dad today? I mean, you don't qualify your son or daughter as to whether or not you're going to get up and help them, right? And this is what it's saying here. It's like, if you come to God and ask him for wisdom because you're in need and he has the solutions, he doesn't qualify you, doesn't patronize you. Um, he doesn't look down on you. In fact, God helps you. That's what he's saying. He's generous, even if we're not. He's faithful, even if we're not. And so ask of God if you don't know what to do. There is no hindrance on God's part. There's just not. He's generous and he gives without fault finding. But then in verse six, he actually talks about what we need to do in posturing ourselves. While there's no hindrance in God responding to us, there can be a hindrance in us receiving from God. And that's why James says this in verse six. He says, but this person must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Wow, this is amazing. So God's generous, God's gracious, God doesn't show partiality. He'll give us wisdom when we ask. But we may not receive it if we're doubting and if we're fickle and if we're not postured in a way where we're really looking to receive from God. What's James talking about? It sort of sounds like I gotta be perfect or it sounds like I have to do something in order to get something. It seems like, Pastor Ben, you just said you don't and now you're saying you do. Actually, you have to think in extreme terms. Uh, James isn't being petty or picky here. He's actually saying that some people have a kind of Christian life where they only come to God when they're under duress, but they're not really committed to him. There are some times where people say, God, if you get me out of this jam, I'll follow you, you know? And uh, you can't really build your house in the storm. And what James is trying to say here is like, look, if you're the kind of person that is really not committed to God and you're not really interested in following Jesus, but you just want God's help to get out of a jam and then do your own thing, that person shouldn't expect to receive anything because having wisdom from God means that you're following God. You can't just ask God and then not realize, it's not just that he's going to give you a download right away, it's that through your mind and through your heart and through your relationship with him and through your study of his word, he's going to give you the wisdom that you need. It may not be that moment, it might not be that hour, but it might be in a day. Uh, it might be the next day. The wisdom might be like, hey, I want you to fast. And as you fast in two or three days, you might receive through your relationship with God the wisdom that you needed. And you realize as you turn away from some things and you turn toward him and to seek him and to listen to him, all of a sudden, what you need will come. But a person that's just in a jam and trying to ask from God in that second and then they're willing to turn away from him the next one, well, he's saying that person shouldn't expect anything because the context of their life isn't, uh, isn't really receptive. I mean, it'd be sort of like if we were playing baseball 
and both of us had gloves and we were just catch. We were just playing catch. And, uh, and I throw the ball at you and then you have the ball and I say, hey, throw the ball at me. But I'm just sort of like turning my head away. And, uh, and, and if you don't throw it within a second, I just sort of turn, I just sort of turn away, you know, and then you're going to throw the ball. Am I really going to catch the ball if I'm not focused on you? If I'm not watching for you to throw it, if I'm not waiting to receive it, uh, you have to have a certain context to receive it, you understand? And that's what he's talking about. He's saying people that are just trying to get out of something, trying to get out of a jam, uh, trying to get a quick fix, they're not waiting to receive what God is giving. Uh, the context of their life, they can't, they shouldn't expect anything. And so this is really important. He actually defines this in verse 8 as double-mindedness. That's what he's, he's saying, a person that's double-minded, not just double-minded about whether or not they're asking or want the wisdom from God, but they're double-minded about their relationship with God. So the first and most important step in really us receiving from God, period, is being surrendered. If that hasn't happened, we need to do that. God, I surrender to you. In the context of relationship, we're going to receive from God what the Bible promises. And, th and this is where it does promise that God will give us wisdom. But we cannot be double-minded. We cannot have two lives. We cannot have a type of hypocrisy and duplicity where we're really not wanting to walk with God. And please put this into more extreme terms than just not being perfect. Sometimes we read this and we're like, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to get anything from God. <laughs> well, if that's the case, nobody ever will. He doesn't mean it like superficial. He doesn't mean like if your relationship isn't perfect or if your life with God isn't where it should be and everybody's going to say that. I could pray more. I could read the Bible more. I could love God more. I could love people more. All of that's true. But if you sincerely love the Lord and you are walking with him in a way where you can qualify that, I mean, it's clear, then you should expect to receive from the Lord. You're not a double-minded person, all right? That's not what he's talking about. But he's cutting right across what we might today call cultural Christianity, Cultural Christianity is where we sort of pay homage to the God of the Bible, but we don't follow him. Um, we ask him for help when we're in trouble, and we sort of give him credit when we're doing really well financially, but uh, we're just, just as confused as an unbeliever when things aren't perfect in our life. We really don't know the Word of God. We really don't understand what the purpose of God is. We're really not engaged in the mission of God. Uh, yeah, that's not a place you want to be anyways, but if that's not you— when you ask God for wisdom, you'll get it, friend, you'll get it. And that's what, that's what the promise is, and that's what we know. In verse 9, he goes into talking about two different kinds of people. I think this is interesting because the whole conversation is actually together here. He's, again, talking to the people under duress, facing persecution, scattered abroad. They've probably got all kinds of things they're facing. He says, but the brother of humble circumstances, or somebody that's poor, is to glory in his high position. Well, why? Verse 10, and to the rich man, he is to glory in his humiliation because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. You know, James just, it sounds rather morbid, but he just sort of says exactly what he's thinking. I like brother James. Don't you like James? I like brother. I feel like James is somebody that I would hang around. You know, you know he just, he just tell you exactly what he, nobody would ever say, James, tell us what you're really thinking. I mean, he, he's, I already did, you know. Verse, three, verse 11, he says, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and, the, and withers the grass its flower falls off, the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. 
Now, he talks about two people. The first is the poor person and the rich person. Here's what I believe he's saying. He's saying, trials have a way of leveling everybody. It just does. You can be rich and you can be poor, and trials level all of us. We all are going to suffer. We all are going to struggle. To the rich person, you can't buy your way out of difficulty and pain. You can't. And to the poor person, you can't act like because you don't have certain status in life that God doesn't see you and won't give graciously and generously to you. Trials level all of us. All of us are in need of what God has, and all of us are seen the same way through God's eyes. This is a beautiful picture for each of us to realize that all of this stuff in this life is fading away, but what is true is God's love toward us. God sees us and he loves us. The status of our life, the things of this life do not matter. Trials put us all on equal footing and God loves us all the same. And this is so powerful, whether we think we're the victim or whether we think we're loved by everyone in the world and society, none of it matters. What matters is God is the same to all of us. And he makes sure that the readers understand that very thing. In verse 12, he says, "'Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. The literal translation would say the crown that is life. The crown that is life. He will see the crown that is life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Uh, This is the profound promise is, is that all of this is going somewhere, right? So no matter what we're going through, Here's what God is doing. God is trying to give us life, life abundantly, life eternally. This is the promise. He wants to crown us with life. This is obviously borrowed from the athletic world. In their day, they would see athletes and they race or they whatever their competition is. Uh, the prize at the end was a wreath, and that was sort of a garland. They would put this on the top of the victor's head. There's a different types of crowns. Sometimes people will say there's five different ones, but he's really just using this as a metaphor, and he's saying, at the end of all of your physical life, this is what God is giving to you. He's giving to you eternal life. That's the promise of God. That's why we endure in all things. That's why we can rejoice no matter what we're facing, that no matter what this life looks like, real life is eternal. Real life is about Jesus. Real life is what we all are putting our hope in. That's what it's all about, and that's why you can smile. That's why you can have great joy. That's why even if you're dying, even, I mean, as morbid as it sounds, even if you're dying in these type of circumstances, we can look up because our redemption is drawing near. God is with us. God is for us. Jesus proved it to us, and we love him, and we give our life to him. And all of these things are working out his will in our world and in our life as we follow Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I mean, it's just a it's just a beautiful thing. Every, every one of us is going to go through suffering and difficulty. Every one of us is going to physically die. And James is just projecting like that greater promise and saying, don't look to just these things. Don't be consumed by them because there's something so great. I'm not even sure if I know how to articulate it, but I'm going to say like, you're going to receive the crown, which is life. There's nothing greater that you should long for or desire for. It's so powerful. He goes on here 
in verse 13, he says, Let no one, when he is tempted, say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Uh, Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. He's basically just saying like to the person who would begin to blame God. And this really helps for those of us that could get into that mentality. Like what I'm facing is God's fault. He's saying God's not tempting you. God's not putting this difficulty in your life to see if you can cross the line or not, to see if you're holy enough, uh, to see if you're righteous or not. He's not putting uh, horrible things in our lives uh, because that's what he longs to do. He's not playing some game with us. He's not like that. God is the one that redeems us out of the mess that humanity has created. And James fortifies that theology, the theology that says God isn't the one that made all this bad. God gave us the stewardship in the garden. We chose sin and disobedience. The spider web of sin affects all of us. Jesus came to redeem us out of that mess. God is not the one tempting us and trying to... uh, prove something. He's not trying to make a lesson out of something, but he uses everything in life. Of course, he wants to use it. Of course, he's going to walk us through it. Of course, he has a goal in it, but it's not of him. What's of him is to make us mature. What's of him is to make us like Jesus. What's of him is to give us eternal life. That's what Jesus showed when he walked the earth. And so he's saying, don't blame God for the things that you're walking through. He's not using this as some sort of uh, test that he wants you to fail and he really gets some kind of fulfillment or enjoyment out of that. He's saying, we get enticed by our own lust. We get carried away by our own desires. Those desires came from the fall. That comes from our disobedience. So we need to be aware that that's still in us and he's leading us away from that, not into that. And he says, listen, it's our own lust that when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin and it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. Uh, This is so powerful. He's actually contrasting what God is like. God's the one giving good things. God's the one that is bringing life. God's the one that brings healing. God's the one that loves us through something, that leads us through something. He's not the one trying to smash us, kill us, steal from us. He's the one that redeems us out of all of the mess and the trash uh, that this broken world offers and that we've participated in. You have to see God the right way, right? That's the goal, part of the goal of James's conversation. You have to see God the right way. Sometimes when we're struggling, we blame God or we imply that it's of God. And if he doesn't heal us right away or take us out of the situation right away, we don't really have a bigger picture, which he's sort of providing here in these verses. We have to see this as a big picture. These things are going to happen to people that know God and don't know God. But the people that don't know God are not going to walk through these situations with him. His presence is the greatest thing that we're going to have in it all and through it all. Uh, It's him. He is the desire of the nations. He is the one that we're after. It's his presence in the midst of all this. And there is an end goal. And James talks about how good God is. Be reminded, God is 
is good. God isn't stealing. God isn't robbing. God isn't tempting. God isn't taking. Uh, God is giving. God is releasing. God is healing. God is the one that is good. All good gifts come down from heaven. They come from our heavenly Father. He says, in the exercise of his will, he brought forth by the word of truth so that we would be the kind of first fruits to all of his creation. That's Christians. Uh, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Does that kind of make sense now that this statement that sometimes we quote, it's sort of connected to all these verses, who's reading it, who's writing it, what they're going through. He's talking about how our, our view of God, it gets kind of messed up when we're going through things and that we need to see God as the giver of good things. He's the one that gives good gifts, but we're the ones that can be enticed by our own lust in the middle of these this context. And then he says, hey, we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Why would they be angry? Well, they'd be angry at God. They would be angry at God. They would be angry at people. They would be angry at the context of their life. They would be angry at the situations that didn't pan out the way that they saw. Do you relate to this? I certainly do. Anger is that secondary emotion of reaction that comes out of us when things go wrong in our lives, when things insult us and affect us and offend us. Um, And maybe we don't think God was going to allow it. And so now we're angry at God, we're angry at people, we're angry at life, we're angry at ourselves. And he's saying the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. In other words, if you allow yourself to be and remain angry, you are not going to ultimately go where you need to. You're not going to ultimately be where you need to. And so he warns us of anger. And then he says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, put it aside and humble yourself and receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So there's the word that God implants, and he says, the way you receive that word is by humbling yourself, all right? We humble ourselves and we respond to the word of God, and we're able to receive it, and he says, it will save our souls. He's not talking about eternally right there. He's talking about it will deliver us. From what? From the bondage and the cycle of bondage that will actually destroy our lives in this life. If we follow the wrong path, it says wide is that path that leads to destruction. And our life will be consumed with anger. It will be consumed with filthiness. It will be consumed with bitterness and offense. And he's saying, humble yourself, receive the word which God has given, and watch what the Lord will do. It will deliver your soul. The word of God will deliver our souls. Not just when we're feeling good and happy and everything's going right, but especially when it's not going the way that we thought that it would. And then I'll just sort of close here. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person that he was. I just want to close this chapter. We're missing just a few verses here. But he says, do this, all right, to those that are going through something. Make sure that you're a person that is reading the Word of God. But when you read the Word of God, don't forget what you see about your own heart. When you look at the Word of God, make sure that you humble yourself to the Word, receive what the the planting of the Lord, what God wants to do, and God will deliver your soul. You'll stay on the narrow path and you'll avoid the 
broad path, so powerful. God has a way of delivering all of us no matter what we're going through. He has a way of setting us free from the inside out. And be sure of this, if nothing else can do it, if we have not been able to do it, God can always do it. That's what James wants us to know. James is saying there is a path that's broad, but you are called to stay on the narrow path. That's the path that leads to life. And God wants to crown you with life. He gives you endurance as you face these things. You're gonna make it all the way. He's gonna bring you to completion, to maturity. That's his desire. That's his promise. That's what we can receive today. And that's what we're after. Amen? Hey, listen, God bless you today. Thank you for tuning into Bible Foundations. We're in the book of James. We're in chapter one. I look forward to jumping into James chapter two, but let me pray over us as we close our chapter today. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for this study in the book of James. God, I pray for all of us that are watching and participating in this, that we would not be hearers of your word, but we would be doers of your word. Uh, we pray for you to powerfully convict us of not only our sin, but convince us of your righteousness, that we would stay on the right pursuit, the straight and narrow path. I pray for your blessing on everyone watching this, uh, that we would go after you with all of our heart. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. See you when we start James chapter 2.